Last time we saw the scarlet thread of redemption woven into chapter 2 in the story of Rahab the harlot. And this brought out memories of the Passover, if you remember, and pointed forward to Christ's redemption of us. This was a great study to give to somebody of the Jewish faith who's open to the gospel because you see a lot of prefigurement to fulfillment. So it's pretty neat. Tonight we're going to see the children of Israel finally step foot into the promised land crossing westward through the Jordan River, which God miraculously stops for them to cross over. And you can see the parallels as we go through this. It's amazing the, the types, the prefigurements of the Old Testament and how they're fulfilled in the New Testament. But even in our own Christian walk, we can see the difference between wilderness experiences and promised land experiences is. Some partake and some stay behind, like the two and a half tribes of Israel uh, that decided not to cross over into the promised land, even though God promised them land flowing with milk and honey and uh, you know all these great things. Still, two and a half tribes said, you know what, this land looks fine to us. We're going to stay on the east side of the Jordan. But what we see here is... Um, five messages given here prior to the crossing of the Jordan. And the question is why? These are messages of encouragement and instruction. The last time they didn't believe, if you remember, and it ended in disaster. Uh, they were here uh, some 40 years ago, uh, and they spent, because of their unbelief, they spent 40 years wandering in unbelief, and that generation died. So this is their big-time chance at redeeming their faith in God. And God is going to give them every opportunity to get it right this time. And we're going to go see what each one of these messages is about. So, starting with verse 1 in chapter 3. It says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they crossed over. And so it was after three days that the officers went through the camp. And they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. So we see the first messages is the officers are speaking to the people. And then Joshua addresses them personally. But what do we see in the officer's instructions? Well, before that, it's amazing, the new, I guess, the numbers in the Old Testament and the New Testament, how you see a repetitive nature, like seven is the number of completion, six is the number of man. But here you see that, that three number again. Um, again, the, the types in the Old Testament are, are unmistakable here. Joshua waited three days prior to bringing the children of Israel into the promised land. And we also know that after three days, Christ led us into the promised land. He was resurrected from the dead and fulfilled all his promises to us. So you see those types. In verse 3, we see that the people are not to do anything until the Ark of the Covenant goes first. Now, the Ark of the Covenant. When I was a kid, <laughs> probably the best depiction of the Ark of the Covenant was, it was totally unscriptural, but remember Indiana Jones, you know, <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark? It just was kind of neat. It was that gold box and the angel and the cherubim, and when the bad guys opened it up, they were consumed, you know. So it kind of, as a kid, it, it sticks in my mind, right? But that was basically a piece of furniture, if you will, that God said He would literally dwell atop. 
you had your, your box, it was overlaid with gold, you had your mercy seat, which was the lid, and then you had the, uh, the two cherubim that were facing each other with their wings outstretched, and in the middle their wings would touch. And on top of the mercy seat, uh, God said that he would dwell. He would literally dwell in, in that, in that his, his physical dwelling in a sense. Well, what does that signify, though? Well, this whole thing about letting the priest go first, it should be strikingly obvious today to us that we shouldn't go anywhere unless God is leading us. I mean, it's right here, and it certainly applies to us today. We should also be cognizant that God is guiding in our lives. We should be cognizant of his guidance, and we should look for that. I, I see people uh, say, God told me to do this, and God told me to do that, and God told me to do this, and it's chaotic. God is not the God of chaos. If he's causing you to be in confusion, chances are you're listening to yourself and not God. Kind of the God told me bingo game. doesn't work. But in verse 4, we see the space between the ark and the people that they must observe. What for? Well, two reasons. Number one, when I was a kid growing up in New York, whenever they, I'd see a fire truck or an ambulance, there'd always be a big sticker on the back bumper. And it said, emergency vehicle, keep back 200 feet. Right? So, um, attention, this is important. Don't crowd it. For our application, there's always a distance that sinful man, and again, in the Old Testament, is to maintain away from God because of his holiness. Now, there was a reverence that needed to be observed. Only the high priest, once a year, could enter the Holy of Holies, and he would offer that sacrifice, the blood of the animal, and, and present it before God to see if that was an acceptable sacrifice. He had a robe, he had bells on the robe, and uh, Talmudic tradition says that they would tie a, a, a rope around his waist, and if he was to, the bell stopped ringing and they know he fell over and you know, God judged them, they'd have to pull him out because they couldn't go in and get him, right? So there was a reverence that needed to be observed. Uh, 2,000 cubits, a cubit was just one of those measurements in the, in the Old Testament. A span was like the, the, between the thumb and the pinky, it was like the span of your hand. And a cubit basically was a foot and a half. It was the basic distance between your elbow and the tip of your fingers. That's how they did a lot of measurements by their bodies. So 2,000 cubits was about 3,000 feet. So that was a tremendous distance that the people had to keep between themselves and God, right? So, but we know now that Jesus closed that gap. Jesus effectively closed that gap when he died on the cross. We know the scripture tells us that the veil of the temple, uh, the Holy of Holies, was, was rent in twain. It was a very thick layers and layers and layers of this curtain that separated that Holy of Holies room where the ark was, where uh, the once a year, you know, going and, and visiting and, and giving that sacrifice, and the rest of the people. But in the New Testament, when Jesus died on the cross, that, that veil was rent in twain, in a sense, and what that meant was God was opening the door and allowing, the, you know, because of Jesus' death on the cross, man to be in fellowship with God again. So restoring that kind of Garden of Edenish type of relationship in a sense. So uh, we know that in the scripture, Hebrews 4.16, it says that we can boldly now come to the throne of grace, Paul tells us, you know, to seek that mercy in time of need. So we can boldly come before God's throne, which is amazing. Right? We, we've been adopted as his sons. Okay. Uh, and the second thing, the reason, the other reason is spelled out in Scripture. It's right here in the book. There needed to be a distance to account for a change in direction from God. They had to keep that distance because they said they've never gone this way before, and it had to account for the change in direction of where God was leading 
those men, you know, those holy men, and the people would have to change direction accordingly. So, it's spelled out right here in Scripture. And the question is, do we account for change of direction from God in our lives? I mean, again, people say, oh, the Old Testament is tough reading. It's really not. You pray about it, you ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes, and you read the Old Testament, and you, you know, you'll see that the applications for our lives are abounding. Does God, do we account for God changing direction in our lives? Often the answer is no. A lot of us pray and we want quick answers. We want to make God that little genie in the bottle. You know, all right, I'm praying, Lord, can't you see I'm praying? I need an answer by tonight. You rub the bottle and he comes out and you're looking for that answer. But that's not the way God works. Uh, a lot of times we change direction and we don't give God a chance to answer our prayers. Or he's changing direction and we're not sensitive to hear from him. So we want to do what we want to do, and we want him to bless it. And we've all been there, right? And also, one other thing is the priests here uh, typify it's a type of Christ here. Remember, just I love studying, again, I don't know, I just love studying the Old Testament, and I like to really get deep into it so I can see where, where the New Testament comes out in that. And the, uh, the ark was a very interesting thing because it had, again, the box, the cover, the cherubim, the overlay of gold. But it also had, on each side, it had these two huge metal hoops or you know, loops that were fastened to the box. So there were four, two on one side and two on the other. And the way the ark was supposed to be carried was there was a pole that went through the one side, the two, the two hoops, and on the other side to the two hoops. And four men would carry that ark. This way, they wouldn't touch it. Because we remember the story about when they tried to transport the ark on a cart. Remember that story? I believe one guy's name was Ahio, and the other guy's name was Uzzah. And when the ark was stumbling on the cart because of the bumpy road, it started to tip over. And Uzzah, thinking he was doing the right thing, he put his hand out to stop the ark. And as soon as he touched it, he was done. He was toast. So they said, maybe we should go back to the Old Testament and figure out how to do this whole ark thing. We're not doing it right. So... God gave the priests an amazing responsibility here because, again, on top of that mercy seat dwelled God, the Shekinah glory, okay? And he gave those priests the ability to present God to the people as mediators. They were the only ones who could get that close. So now we're going to see in verse 5 and 6 that Joshua addresses the people personally. Verse 5. And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Then Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. So again, as a type of Christ, Joshua tells the people to sanctify themselves or consecrate themselves or to set apart the people. You guys got to set yourselves apart. For what? For the service of God. Separate yourself from sin. Separate yourself as only unto the Lord. He wants them to, them to be prepared in the presence of God and his mighty works. So this may have prompted the people to ceremonially wash. It was ceremonially washing that was done. Repentance or any other prescriptions in the Old Testament to set yourself apart. To do that action it was a hard action that you would separate yourself for the service of God. And our job as Christians is to sanctify ourselves, as it won't be long before the Master comes back for his servants. Remember, we were reading in Luke chapter 12 on Sunday about the faithful servant, the believing servant, and really mostly Jesus spoke about 
in more of that uh, parable, he spoke more about those who were the unfaithful and the unbelieving servants. So, uh, you know, we were, sp were supposed to be ready. We're not supposed to be getting drunk and beating up the fellow servants. And that's our picture of unpreparedness, just doing our own thing, going our own way. But the master will be pleased if he finds the servants doing the right thing, okay? So we see that the first message is to follow the Lord, and the second message is to prepare ourselves when following the Lord. In verse 6, he gives the third message, which instructs the spiritual leaders to lead the people. That's the job of a leader, to lead the people. Not just instruction, but example. I see two common today vices accepted in the church. Greed. You know, and it's amazing how this stuff gets justified. You know, greed is greed. <laughs> I want for me. There's a guy uh, I was watching, and I get so frustrated, I shouldn't watch the news anymore. There's a guy, his name is Miranda, and he's in a church in uh, Florida, and he calls himself the man Christ Jesus. Can you imagine somebody with a, the chutzpah, for lack of a better word, to call themselves the Messiah? So he calls himself the man Christ Jesus, he says he's the second coming, and he's got people who are, you know, well-to-do people, giving him all this money. The guy lives really high. Not only is he a blasphemer, but he's greedy. So it's just amazing how it's accepted in the church today. And it's, it's see, everything is, is turned and twisted. All these words, these, these vices, these sins, they're all turned, and it's, a little spin campaign is done to make it sound better. Greed is turned into success. You know, God wants you to be successful. That's what greed is turned into. It's a shame. Um, idolatry. How many people put something in front of God? It happens all the time. Adultery. Very common. Okay, it's accepted. Pride. Uh, these things are accepted too readily. Hey, what's the problem? What's the big deal? I was talking to a brother recently who, who follows a man on the radio who's uh, called for the end of the world. Uh, he's given several dates that have not fulfilled. Um, people are shaking their heads. You probably know who I'm talking about. And he said, this guy who's on the radio says, you shouldn't join a church anymore. The church age is over. Of course, because he got kicked out of his church for his kooky behavior. And now he wants people to follow him and he has these seminars. It's all semantics. The, the Greek word for church is ecclesia. It just means to be called out. What's the difference between an ecclesia here or in a church building or in a seminar form? There's really no difference. But the interesting thing is, uh, his false prophecies in the Old Testament would get him the death penalty. He'd be stoned. But here, people, God is, is we're in the age of grace, and God allows people, unfortunately, for a time to, to pervert the word of God, but they'll be judged in the end, the Bible says. But this is accepted. So he made a few mistakes, you know. Same thing with uh, many other cults. They, they predicted the end of the world falsely several times, and people still follow them. Then their feet aren't held, held to the fire. I see a lot of times dynamic personalities are preferred over moral character, and it's a shame. We're willing to make far too many concessions for people who are charismatic and have a good reputation among men. My, my attitude is expect anything from anyone, because you just never know. The only person that you can trust is Jesus Christ, you know, and, and that's just the way it is. You've got to stop putting our faith in man. Uh, I find that every time people put their faith in man, the Lord either exposes man or he takes him away. And I mean for good and bad. Even good people who, uh, who are mentors and, and leaders, and all of a sudden they die instantaneously in their 40s, which to me is young. And uh, people are like, where'd that person go? Why would, why would God take that person home? But sometimes it's a stimulus to get people to stop sitting on the fence 
and following man so much and do something themselves. God wants to get people motivated, you know? We're all equal in his eyes. So, I'm going a little off on the subject, but we've got to put our faith in God. Verse 7, it says, And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to magnify you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. The fourth message is sort of a reordination in a sense of Joshua. God is, is giving him confidence. He's putting his, uh, his supernatural seal of approval on Joshua. And he's, he's encouraging him to go. I am behind you. I'm backing you. Um, there was a word that, uh, again, when I was growing up, it still may be used, and this is in a bad sense, of the word backed. If you were backed, that meant that nobody should mess with you because if they did, the mob would come after you. And people would be afraid of somebody who was backed. Now, of course, that's in a bad sense. But here, God's got your back. And if God's got your back, nobody can mess with you. Verse 8. He says, You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. Joshua is commanded by God to have the priests go to the water's edge of the Jordan and stand in it. See, the crossing of the Jordan was done in stages. This is a good point. I really like this. You had your pep talk, in a sense, your encouragement to the people, you know, the, the exhortation to the people, the officers and Joshua. They were talking to the people, encouraging them. That was the first step. The second step was the consecration. Guys, you know, God is before us. God is going to do great things. We've got to get ourselves right. So it was the encouragement, then the consecration. The third thing was the assembling of the ark, the preparing. And the fourth thing was the people to follow. And the fifth thing was dipping your feet in the river and then stand back. See what the Lord is going to do. So things were done in steps. And again, we can liken it to our, we can liken it to our own lives. And, and so God directs it in our lives in stages. Psalm 119.105, which actually Heather and I had put on our wedding cake when we got married at a reception. It says, uh, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. And what it means is really is that, you know, God, God helps us to, to live our lives in stages. You know, we're always children before him. He doesn't want us to get too far ahead of him. You know, those little oil lanterns that they had would give you just enough light to see a few feet in front of you. And that's what God's word is. It's, it's a, a light to our path so we don't stumble and a lamp into our feet. You know, that's what we need to look at, the floor, as we're, as we're walking, step by step. Okay, verse 9. He says, So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore... Take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe. And it shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that shall come from the upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. So here in the fifth message, he's explaining to the people the supernatural sight they're going to see, uh, regarding the Jordan River. It's proof that God will not only be with his people, that he will personally have his hand 
like the Bible says, his righteous right hand in driving out all the indigenous people of the promised land. He said he was going to do that. He names them all. On a side note, um, you know, it's funny. You read the scripture as a new Christian and uh, you have problems with what you're reading. You know, I don't understand it. Well, this seems kind of harsh. And I would read some of this stuff and go, well, that seems kind of harsh. You know, that's not fair to those people. But the interesting thing is that um, I now see countries and societies where children are brainwashed to murder, to blow themselves up, to hate people with a venom, to sing children's songs about killing people. Uh, their innocence is gone. The people are so poisoned that I certainly would understand if God judged them as a nation. The Canaanites had some 400 years to repent, and they did not. And God's long-suffering is there. But eventually, there's, there's, I guess, in a sense, an expiration date. Sort of like what happens in the Age of Grace. We know that the clock will eventually stop ticking, and then things are going to start changing again. When that seventh year, that seventh, uh, 70th Shabuah, seven in, in the book of Daniel 9, starts ticking again. Where Jesus said, don't hold this, to this account when he was on the cross. Where Stephen, the first Christian martyr, said, God, forgive them. It was all forgive, forgive. Well, there's going to come a point in time where the, uh, the tribulation saints are going to say, Lord, how long, O Lord God, will it take before you, you take vengeance upon us? So things are going to start to change, all right? So the Canaanites had 400 years to repent, and they didn't, and uh, their time was up in a sense. Now, my opinion, and I always like to separate my opinion for what Scripture is, because uh, Scripture is Scripture, and if it's a little gray, I don't want to say my opinion is fact. But I believe that um, even if children are brainwashed and they're from those whacked out societies, you know, if they're under the age of accountability, the Lord will take them to heaven because they're brainwashed. The kids, they don't know right from wrong. They don't know their right hand from their left. And they're just doing what their parents are brainwashing them to do. So that's, that's what I believe. I believe God's a fair God. And, um, you know, we can talk about that another time. But the Canaanites were also a picture of sin. And how if we're willing, God will drive that sin out from our life. God will say, stand back and watch what I'm going to do. If you really will cross over and take that step of faith, I will drive out that sin from your life. You don't know how many times, and I'm sure you've heard it from friends and family, well, I can't come to church because I'm not right. It's almost like they think if they walk into Calvary Chapel Crossfield and see us all singing, that we're all holy and none of us have any sin. <laughs> so, um, you know, obviously that's not true because I'm not the only one laughing at that one. <laughs> but the point is, the Canaanites were a picture of sin and a picture of God driving out sin from our life, if that's what we desire, and that's what we'll let him do that. We accept the Lord, we repent of our sins, and then he, he does the cleanup work. And sanctification is an ongoing process. So this feat is reminiscent of the Red Sea crossing, where the waters stood still in columns, and the children of Israel walked through on dry grounds, and then when they crossed over the Red Sea... The Egyptian army came in, and the columns fell down and engulfed them. Uh, statistics on the Jordan River, just so we don't think that this was a little pond, a little puddle that they were walking through. Uh, I, I like to go into the history of things. When we go into Jericho and the walls falling, I'm going to go more into the incredible uh, structure of the Jericho walls, that for this to happen, it was an incredible feat from God. Statistics on the Jordan River. The Jordan River starts some distance north of the Sea of Galilee, a little bit to the northeast by, the Mount, by Mount Hermon near what was known as Caesarea Philippi because there was two Caesareas. There was Caesarea Philippi, which was uh, north of the Sea of Galilee and inland, and then there was uh, um, Caesarea, 
which was on the western coast, beautiful port city by the Mediterranean Sea. But we're talking about the further north portion, which now the modern name for it is Benias, as the names, as the civilizations change, the names changed. It's also now, you'd be familiar with this modern countries, it's on the Syrian-Lebanon border, where a lot of activity must have happened recently over there with uh, the Middle East. But the river continues through the Sea of Galilee, right, the Jordan River, down to the Dead Sea where it ends. And the Dead Sea is the greatest distance below sea level. Uh, I remember from one of my last studies, it was roughly 690 feet below sea level. That is really a low point in the earth, and apparently it's one of the lowest point, points on the earth. The difference between the highest point and the lowest point of the Sea of Galilee is some 2,500 feet. That's very interesting if you know anything about pitch and grading, right? Um, uh, 2,500 feet, to put it in terms that you can fathom, is roughly, it's a little bit less than a half a mile. So from the highest point, the Jordan River, to the lowest point is almost a half a mile. That's an incredible pitch, okay, even for that distance. Uh, so Jordan, the word Jordan means descender. So in a sense, the Jordan River means the, the descending river, which would make a lot of sense. And through history, the Jordan River has served as a natural boundary. So this is, no, again, no little puddle, no little pond that they're wading in. Uh, verse 14. It says, so it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people and as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan and the feet of the priest who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city which is beside Zaratan. So the waters that went down into the sea of the Areba, the salt sea, failed and were cut off. And the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all, all Israel crossed over the dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. So in verse 15, again, in case anybody would think, and you have some of these supposedly uh, discerning people, 2,000 years later, they talk about, remember the Red Sea journey, and they say, well, it is possible that they, they walked through a, the Joseph of Israel crossed to a very shallow portion, so really it wasn't a great miracle. The people who like to discount the miracles of God. Okay, so how did the Egyptian army <laughs> drown in four feet of water? I mean, they must have been pretty pathetic, right? So, it's the same thing here. What we see is that in, in this type of time of year, during harvest time, the Jordan was at its highest. And every year, this area floods, right? Now, the flooding was so great that the Jordan would, at, at this time of the year, and I think, I don't think, I know God does it on purpose. He makes things look so monumentally impossible so that when he brings us through it, we, don't, we can't think it's us. We know it was him. But the Jordan at this time of year is 40 feet deep, Okay, and it, it swells its banks to from end to end, east to west, to almost two miles wide. So that's a big. I bet you the people from Jericho were looking at that. No doubt that they sent people to check it out. They're like, they're not going to get over here. There's no way they're going to be they're going to be tossed downstream. You know, it's not going to happen. They don't have. I don't see any boats, right? So so this is what they do here. Now many use this as a picture of baptism, and I, I believe in Hebrews it also speaks about that. Uh, in the sense that they were going through the Jordan. The Jordan was held up. In a sense, they were immersed in the Jordan. 
It was like a, you know, going from the old to the new, being baptized, a new start, a renewed faith in God. The old man is dead, etc. It's a very interesting picture of baptism. And in verse 16, what's hard to imagine is this river became a wall of water where the children of Israel were standing. This would indicate that the river didn't stop flowing. Think about it. If, the, if God just stopped the river from flowing, then there would just be like this little this, this wall and they would walk through and find. But it says that it was a heap. And then we see the overflow into other areas, other cities, which we're going to get to. So the river was continuing to flow, but right where the children of Israel was, he stopped it. And the rivers were mounding up into a heap. Now that must have been like, that must have been wild. Could you just imagine? It's almost like you're in an aquarium. It's like a sea of glass and the things just stop, and you're looking at the little fish, kind of looking at you swimming by. That must have been really wild to see, right? So it was pretty monumental. And two cities are mentioned here to help get a picture of this monumental event, which aren't, uh, I had to do a little research to understand these two cities, Adam and Zaratan. Adam was apparently in Perea. When we, when we go, as we go through Luke chapter 12, or 13, as a matter of fact, on Sunday, we're going to talk a little bit about Perea. Perea was roughly in this area on the east side of the Jordan, right? So Adam was apparently in Perea on the east side of the Jordan. Zaratan was actually on the west side of the Jordan, right? Some distance away. It's estimated that these two cities were estimated as high as 12 miles away from the banks of the Jordan River. Isn't that amazing? So all this, this wall of water is stopped. They're going through. And the water has got, it's got to go somewhere. And it's going sideways. And <laughs> these people... Probably the Adamites and the Zaratanites didn't buy, buy flood insurance. You know, they're far enough away that they wouldn't have to. All of a sudden, one day, their, their basements are getting flooded, right? So it's pretty amazing. And it's just me, but I look at Adam to Zaratan, A to Z, east to west. It's like when God does something, he covers it completely. It's just something like kind of silly thing that I just came up with. But also, did you catch the miracle in verse 17? You would think that... Uh, so, so there's a wall of water, and they've got to put their waders on because of all the mud. It says that they walked through on dry ground. He sucked up every bit of moisture from that ground so that the seabed was dry. When God does a miracle, he does it big. God doesn't leave any stone unturned. It's pretty amazing stuff, right, when you really think about it. Uh, again, that just hit me. Just everything that God does is perfect. So imagine how they must have felt when they crossed over. Faithful, triumphant. You know, think of some uh, adjectives. Accomplishment, elation, emotional, redeemed, right? God gave us a second chance. We blew it the first time, but God gave us a second chance to trust in him, to see what he would do. We, we put our feet in, in, the, in the Jordan. He, he stopped the waters for us, and we went through, right? People are creatures of habit. It's clear from scriptures that, you know what? They, be, they probably became, you know, the old generation were comfortable in Egypt. And we know that. Because in the wilderness, even though God promised them the promised land and he would provide for them, oh, the leeks, the onions, oh, if we were only back in Egypt. You were slaves in Egypt. <laughs> they forgot that part, right? Um, they probably even got used to the wilderness wandering. Uh, again, two and a half tribes stayed on the east of the Jordan River. They said, eh, it's nice cattle grazing country. We're going to kind of sit here and build our cities. But we'll send some warriors over with you, right? Uh, you know, people are creatures of habit. Probably, if nothing else, crossing the promised land to some people would bring new fears of, yeah, but there's big people there. And, you know, who needs the aggravation? I'll stay here. Again, not fully trusting God. But certainly this was a big step in repairing their relationship with God 
and starting to grow their faith again. So the question, the, the natural progression here is what about our lives? You know, to, to read the Bible and to do exposition and to memorize scripture is no good unless there's an application in our life. Because that's what really I love about the Calvary system. Is that, that third prong is application. How do we take what's in the scripture and apply it to our lives? Right? Um, again, I brought it up in the beginning. Do we go into the promised land with our walk with God or do we hang back a little bit? Do we, do we, do we have unbelief? Do we hang back? Do we say, oh, yeah, it looks nice, but I'm not sure. Um, you know, I think of my life, too, as a, as a police officer. Right now, things are pretty easy for me. The department is very agreeable to what I'm doing, and this is on tape. But I'm sure that there may be a day that who knows what will happen, and, and, you know, there will be circumstances which, which push me out. And the Lord says, now it's time to take your feet and dip it in the Jordan. You know, you don't have that crutch anymore, right? So who knows? Uh, time to go, maybe. How about your own life? Have you gotten used to things so long, so long, certain things in your life so long, that you just, you're just not up for the challenge that God has for you? It's just your humdrum existence in certain ways that, you know, God says, look, I want to challenge you. I want to give you something better. I want to take you through the Jordan into the promised land. Do you blow him off and say, I want to stay in cow grazing country, east of the Jordan? Or do you say, you know what, Lord, I'm going to take my toes, I'm going to start with my toes, and I'm going to put my feet in, and I'm going to stand in the water, and I'm going to watch what you do. What do we do in our lives, right? Are we up for the challenge? So that's something that I want to leave you with. And the elders are available at the end of the service to pray or for counseling. So let's pray. Um,